Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking with Paulus Esterhazy. Welcome to the show, Paulus. Thanks for having me on the show. You're welcome. I got to meet you at Heart of Closure about two years ago, maybe almost exactly two years, I think. And you were someone that I really enjoyed talking with in person. We'd also talked online as well a little bit, but you were someone I really enjoyed talking with in person. And it's taken a little while mostly on my end, but I'm glad to have you on the show finally to talk some more because you had some really interesting thoughts then and I think everyone will like to hear them. So to give people some context on who you are and where you're from, do you want to give us a little bit of your background and what you're doing now? Yeah, so I didn't start out as a programmer. I didn't study computer science in college. I studied philosophy and then ended up working at the university for a few years before finally kind of making the switch to tech. And then in the last couple of years, I've been working in Berlin at a bunch of startups. And today I work at Pitch, which is a software company that's making presentation software that makes it easier for people to collaborate on slides. I started out at Pitch as a developer three and a half years ago. And when we started out in early 2018, we were just a small group of programmers and designers kind of working on a greenfield project, right? And back in the time, it was just a small group of people. So with a dozen or so programmers, we didn't need a lot of structure, right? As the time went on, as the company grew, we realized that we needed a little bit more internal structure to be able to work effectively. Now, fast forward to three years later, we now have uh, 70 engineers working for Pitch. Wow. Yeah, so it's kind of grown a lot. I think it's probably one of the bigger closure-based teams around Mm-hmm. So we realized kind of that we needed more structure to support that kind of scale. So at this point, we have around 20 small feature teams that are working on different parts of the product. Three months ago, I started as a new role as a director of engineering. Part of the organization that I work on is the part that builds the presentation editor. So kind of the interface that lets users create slides. Great. Congratulations. So director, what does that mean? That's a good question. I don't think I can give you a definitive answer (laughs) on the definitional question of what does it mean to be a director of engineering? But I can tell you a little bit about what I do. So the way I see my role is that I try to help the people that I work with remove friction so that they can ship features more quickly. So I work with the engineering leads of around a half dozen of feature teams, and I try to remove blockers for them in the day-to-day work. So maybe I can give you one example that's kind of been on the top of my mind recently that I've been thinking about a lot and I've also been kind of talking to people a lot about it. I was actually just discussing it with people last year. The question is, how long does it take for a pull request starting from the initial commit on a developer's laptop Mm -hmm. to the point when it gets merged into master? How long does it take for that process to finish? So what's kind of the average lifetime or lifespan of a pull request? I've been thinking about this a lot because in my experience, one of the best ways to become more effective is to reduce the time that it takes for pull requests to get merged. And then you can kind of look at the life cycle of a pull request, right? When you start working on a feature, you create a branch and you start pushing your changes to it. When you consider your changes ready, then there's somebody who comes in and reviews the code. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And then finally, there's some kind of bullet server that looks at your changes and verifies them and makes sure all the unit tests pass and the integration tests pass and et cetera, et cetera. The branch gets merged into master if all goes well, right? You look at this whole process and look at all the different stages of this pipeline. And you can ask which of those uh, stages delay the process. So for example, if somebody tells you, you know, my PR was open for two weeks, you know, you can kind of look at which of those parts is delaying you, right? Right. Did it take you a long time to find a review to look at the code? Or did it take the build server a long time to print? Maybe not two weeks, but, you know, it, it can take 20 minutes or maybe sometimes it takes longer than that to verify the changes. And then maybe there's a flaky test and you have to restart the, the build a bunch of times. Yeah. Or were the problems early on in the process? Did you kind of take on too large of a project? So just another one example of the things that I talk to people about, right? How can you reduce the average lifetime of a pull request to be able to ship more quickly. Nice. And have you been able to reduce that time at pitch so far? Are you still looking at understanding it? Yeah, I think we have been able to, the teams are quite autonomous in how they work, but we've learned to apply a bunch of techniques. Example of such a technique would be Dart launching. You can get code into master. You can get code deployed kind of into the hands of the customers that isn't live yet, that isn't really visible or available to the customer yet. And that's a very useful technique to learn because it allows you to decouple the release from the deployment. It's one of the most useful things you can do to reduce the size of your pull requests. Yeah, I definitely agree. I've seen that in, in practice at GitHub and they're pretty public talking about that that kind of flow and it definitely makes for much smaller PRs than batching everything up for two weeks until yeah, you know, you've got the complete finished feature all ready to go on one enormous PR. The core of it is really that you want to make people feel empowered to merge code that is incomplete. Yeah. You want to merge partially completed work. And that shouldn't just be acceptable. It should actually be actively encouraged. Something I've been thinking about a little bit, and I don't really have a strong opinion on it, but you might have some thoughts, is the idea of pre-merge and post-merge code review. And kind of the default, mm -hmm. you know, at a lot of places is pre-merge, where, you know, the review has to happen before the code is merged, which has lots of good benefits. But I've been just thinking, yeah, I've seen some people talk about doing post-merge code review and mm -hmm. how it helped them increase their cycle time because they weren't waiting on reviews. And yeah, I'm curious. Do you have any thoughts? It's funny you mention it because it's also something I've been thinking about recently because there's this whole kind of a tradition out there of people who know their stuff, who swear by a technique called trunk-based development. Mm -hmm. The idea being that instead of branching off master and uh, keeping branches alive for longer periods of time, you merge into master much more quickly. So basically the motto is often summarized as don't branch at all, right? And of course, one of the questions that you get when you think about this workflow is how do you deal with code review in that case? And I think there's some interesting arguments to be made that sometimes code review kind of hold you back and at least mandating that the code review happens before the branch gets merged into master. 
But I think there's also some, you know, I still have some reservations about getting code into master without a proper review before it gets accepted. So for example, if you're making infrastructure changes, right? So at Pitch, for example, all our infrastructure is defined using infrastructure as code. And we also hook it up to the continuous deployment pipeline. So whenever you merge a change that changes some cloud formation templates and changes cloud resources, whenever that gets merged into master, it gets automatically deployed. And that can have some devastating effects, <laughs> potentially, if you don't know what you're doing, right? And even if you know what you're doing, I think it's still a good idea to have somebody look over your changes and make sure that not deleting the production database, for example. So at least for this class of changes that are related to infrastructure that are very difficult to revert, I think it makes sense to do before the fact reviews. Mm -hmm. But of course, there's a lot of very smart people who are working using the trunk-based development workflow, which we are not, right? We're using the classical GitHub pull request-based workflow. But, but there's a lot of teams out there who are very successful using other ways of verifying code. And one of the things that they often talk about is doing code review using pairing sessions. Hmm. So instead of doing an asynchronous code review where you look at a diff, you kind of work together on the changes. And through that means you also get some confidence that the, the code is good. Awesome. Something you mentioned earlier was that you do dark shipping or feature flags. How do you actually make that happen? Are you using a pitch for that? I think there's a bunch of techniques that we're using. We started using feature flags on the client side very early on. So as a developer, you can introduce a feature flag when you're starting a new feature and then merge code into master proactively while being confident that it's not going to affect production users because it's hidden behind the feature flag. We've kind of built our own feature flagging system that works on the client side. We also added a sort of feature flagging system on the server. We've had some conversations around using one of the existing SaaS tools that provide feature flags. Mm -hmm. So far, we've been quite happy with our homegrown system. Nice. So yeah, you've been working with Clojure in a rapidly growing organization over three and a half years. What are your thoughts about Clojure? What are the benefits you've seen from using the language? What are the sort of choices that you're happy or maybe not so happy that you've made? When you're starting a new project, you pick some tools, you pick some languages, and then you know a couple of years later, you kind of take stock and think about what other things had worked and what other things that didn't work so well. There are some choices that we made that might not have been ideal, but Clojure is really not one of those. So we're really investing in Clojure, using Clojure both on the back end and on the front end almost exclusively. So it gives us a lot of leverage that every developer who knows Clojure can kind of contribute to either part of the stack very easily. And we've also been very happy with using ClojureScript as a front-end language. So that's maybe the more unusual choice. There's not a lot of front-end projects of this complexity that are written in ClojureScript. And the ClojureScript compiler works really well. We're very happy with the tooling around it. We're using Shadow CLHS. We have been using it for maybe a year now, and it's just fantastic. It works very reliably. It gives you reloading capabilities as incremental compilation. 
is just a wonderful tool to use. So overall, we're very happy with our choice of using Clojure. Nice. One other thing you mentioned I was interested to hear before before the show you mentioned was that you do experimental backend deployments. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is, how that works? So there's actually two things going on there. So it's not just experimental backend deployments that we're doing. We're also doing experimental deployment of the front-end code base. We split up the code. We have a very clean separation between the front-end code and the back-end. The back-end just provides an API, and the front-end can kind of pick which API to use, which API endpoint to send its request to, right? What that gives us is that the front-end code gets deployed to S3, which, in my opinion, is where all static assets should land. You know, they should <laughs> land on S3 or one of the other the cloud provider object storage systems. But, you know, it shouldn't be served by some closure ring HTTP web server. It should be served by right. a static hosting a platform like S3 and then probably served to the user via a CDN. One thing that we learned about this when we were building out the front-end deployment system is that we were able to build alternative versions of the front-end code. So the way we set it up is that when you push to a branch, the changes get compiled by the build server and pushed to S3 under a specific name, a random UUID. You can open an alternative version of the front-end that is identified by this UUID, and you can use the app as if you were using the master build, the, the currently used stable build. So what that gives you is a way to try the app in production using the development system and development database as if you were using the standard build. And that's a very useful thing to have because it allows people from all parts of the company to try out the experimental code without having to download the changes, check out the changes in, in the <laughs> Git repository, you know, build the code, open local host, colon, whatever it is to look at the changes. The only thing you need to do is you have to go to the GitHub build page and click on the link to open the experimental front-end build. So that's super useful. And we were kind of thinking, well, this is so useful. Can we do the same thing for backend changes as well? So we ended up actually implementing the same thing for backend deployments as well. So you can have experimental backend stacks that are just like a normal backend stack, except that they provide a different endpoint URL. And then you can configure a front-end build to be pointed at one of those experimental backend stacks. The effect is that you can very easily test backend changes manually without having to basically touch Emacs or a terminal in any way. Great. Yeah, something I really recommend that people look into building a system like this. I know that Netlify and some other companies give you a way to have these experimental front-end branch builds. I don't think it existed when we started out, but I'm happy that this technique is becoming more and more common these days. Yeah, I've used Netlify in their branch builds, not for anything quite as serious as what you're describing, but just for looking at look previewing blog posts, you can do the same thing. Something else that you introduced me to via Twitter, mentioning this person on Twitter, was G Poor Hill. And I went through and listened to 
bunch of GPAWS podcast episodes. They're pretty short, so you can get through in not too long. And I thought this was someone that I hadn't really heard of before. I just haven't kind of been swimming in those circles, I guess. But do you want to talk a little bit about GPAW, why you like him, that kind of stuff? Yeah, this is, I guess, one of the things that I did during the lockdown last year, you know, basically digging into these tech podcasts. And the biggest revelation for me was finding the podcast of G. Paul Hill, who puts out these very short, you know, 10 minute podcast episodes about specific topics around what he calls geekery. You know, to taking together these 10 minute episodes kind of construct a whole worldview about how to do development. And it's very interesting. It's been very exciting for me to kind of piece together this philosophy bit by bit by listening to these short, very well-written, very well-produced episodes. If there was one sentence to summarize his philosophy is take many more, much smaller steps. So basically applying the philosophy of incrementalism to development. And, you know, we were just talking about pull request workflow. If you're working in a pull request environment, then this motto would turn into merge many more, much smaller PRs. That's at least the takeaway that I'm getting out of the GPO is, is saying. And I think it's a very deep idea behind it. So for me, one of the most powerful ways to get better at delivering software is to do just that, right? To, to take smaller steps, to reduce your step size. As you get better at making changes to the product in small increments, you also get better at shipping value to the user. And I think the reason why taking small steps is so important is not obvious. It wasn't obvious to me, at least. I didn't know about this a couple of years ago. And it's really something that I've been learning about over the last couple of years. So this idea, take many more, much smaller steps, right? It applies on two important levels, right? So the first level is producting. So when you're kind of in the product room and you're discussing the feature roadmap and you kind of try to split up the product features that you want to build for the user into smaller chunks, into smaller stories. The second scenario where this motto applies is when you're keyboarding, producting, when you're actually implementing the feature that you're building with your hands on the keyboard. I was kind of vaguely aware of the values, the advantages of small steps in the product room, but I wasn't as clear about the importance for the actual implementation phase. So that's something that I learned about. So maybe just thinking about myself, how I work, you know, there's a certain awareness that there's a cost associated with small steps, right? Yeah. Because if you're creating a new branch, you know, you kind of have to make a commit, create a new branch, push that to BAS, to push that to GitHub, create a pull request, invite people, do reviews, make it past your test suite, kind of shepherd it into master. Those are all things that kind of take a little bit of time, take a little bit of effort. Yeah, like a real cost associated with it. So what that means is you kind of go like, well, what if I could just do all of these things in one big step? If I just take one leap to the goal that I want to go, just put all of the changes that I want to make into one big pull request, I don't have to pay that cost. I don't have to pay that extra overhead. Yeah, you'll be more efficient. More efficient, yeah. And I think there's some truth in it, right? 
if you can get to where you want to be in one big leap, then other things being equal, this one single step is cheaper than taking multiple smaller intermediate steps. But of course, other things are not equal in most cases, right? There's things that you don't see when you're kind of making this calculation in your head. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that wasn't obvious to me, and it kind of makes sense the way Jipor explains it, is that as you're increasing the size of your step, you're also increasing the cognitive load that is required to understand the changes. There's this you know, famous analogy of the number of things that you can kind of keep in your head. Mm -hmm. I think it's also used in one of Rich Hickey's famous talks. Maybe it's Simple Made Easy, where you think about mental capacity similar to the capacity of a juggler who can keep a number of balls in the air. And you can kind of probably keep three balls in the air, but it's much harder to keep six balls in the air. And then keeping juggling with nine balls is already almost impossible. So it doesn't just get harder and harder the more stuff you keep flying in the air. It gets harder in a nonlinear way. It gets much, much harder Yeah. the more stuff you're juggling. So basically what ends up happening is that we run the risk increasingly of misunderstanding the change that you're making when you're putting up a very large pull request. And it's very easy to inadvertently introduce bugs. And I guess we don't really see that. We have this little devil sitting on our shoulder that tells us, what if you put a little bit more into this pull request and more and more, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's because we don't want to admit to ourselves that our mental bandwidth is kind of depressingly limited. <laughs> and we tend to overestimate our capacity for understanding what a change entails. But if you think about reviewing somebody else's code, right, you probably know this feeling when you're looking at a, <laughs> a, a pull request that touches 500 lines in 50 different files, right? You kind of go like, man, I feel like I'm being reduced to just linting the code. I just kind of mm -hmm. scan it and kind of looks okay. I click through the app once or twice, and then I just wave through the PR because that's basically all you can do with a mega PR like this. Yeah. So you're kind of feeling really overwhelmed by the complexity of the change. And that's kind of a hidden cost of taking these large steps, right? It makes code review more painful. And also for the author of the PR, it makes it more difficult to actually understand what you're doing. And to support those many greater, smaller steps, it's helpful at least to reduce the cycle time of PRs and builds and all of the things that let you take many more steps. If you're taking a small step, but it still takes two weeks to get that small step into production, then maybe it's more efficient to do a large step if there's such a large overhead involved in deploying. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, this topic of step size is connected with so many of the things that we're doing as developers, right? It's related to QA. When do you actually do the QA for a feature? It's related to testing. If you have a good unit testing story, that makes it so much easier to be confident in taking a smaller step and getting a partially completed piece of work into master because you get more confidence from the automated tests and you don't have to do as much manual testing of the code. The build server setup is super important. If your tests are flaky, then it gives you a big incentive to increase your step size. So there's a lot of things you need to be doing kind of to support this kind of workflow. Yeah. Another kind of angle or perspective on this, the, are you familiar with the Dora 
reports, DevOps research and assessments. They also talk about deployment frequency and lead time for changes, leading indicators of effective engineering organizations. So yeah, yeah, it's a whole bunch of people who are talking about this. And uh, it's still so difficult to kind of accept this lesson. There's another kind of aspect to it that I find very interesting and that I haven't seen expressed in the same clear way that GPO does, which is to talk about steerability as an advantage of taking smaller steps. So by a step is something that takes you from one version of the code that is releasable, that you consider releasable, to another version of the code that is releasable. And if you have these two weeks pull requests, right, you have this long in-between state where the code is not considered releasable. That's the time where you have these juggling balls flowing in the air. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that if you're left hanging in this in-between state, you can't easily take a break or you can't easily take a step back to reevaluate your progress. Because you have all these balls flowing in midair, it creates some kind of stress situation for you. You're not really in a position to reevaluate if the path that you're choosing to get to your destination is actually the best one that's available. So you kind of double down on the original plan that you created at the beginning. But the trouble is you're almost guaranteed to be in a better position now, having worked with the code a little bit, to know better about what a good pathing strategy would be. So if you're taking smaller steps, right, you get all of these intermediate checkpoints, which are by, by definition in a releasable state, right? So at each of these points, you can kind of take a break, you can kind of reorient towards the goal, and you can reconsider your pathing strategy. Mm. So most of the time, you will end up realizing that the pathing strategy you devised at the beginning wasn't actually optimal. And having worked with the code, you now know much better about how to get to the, to the end point. Mm. One of the phrases that GPO uses is rework avoidance theory, which is a really interesting way of thinking about that sort of efficiency or you know, perceived inefficiency of taking smaller steps because you might need to rework or touch the same file many times in delivering the overall feature. So it would be more efficient, perhaps, to avoid that rework and just to do it once. If I'm uh, understanding this theory correctly, is that your understanding? Yeah, exactly. We kind of have this reluctance to touch the same code again if you just touched it two days ago. But Jipo is pointing out that this is not a healthy way of thinking about it. And it, there's nothing bad about touching the same code once or twice. In fact, you should kind of put yourself in a position where that's not painful, You know, for example, because you have a good testing setup that makes it easier for you to make changes to the same code more and more frequently. And kind of the alternative approach that he sets over against the rework avoidance theory is incremental switchover. The idea that you start from the very beginning anticipating that you're going to have to rework the same code over and over again, and you kind of try to find techniques that allow you to get to the endpoint in smaller steps, and that may not be the most direct path to the destination, but it will, at the end of the day, be more efficient than trying to jump to the endpoint in one big leap. Yeah. One thing that really resonates with me in how GPO talks about these small steps is kind of when he talks about rhythm, 
the rhythm that kind of drives your development day to day. And what he points out is that there's a certain pleasurable feeling of completion or a feeling of closure that's associated with finishing a piece of work. Mm -hmm. And if you only get to experience that every two weeks, then you don't get the positive reinforcement from this very positive feeling that you just managed to get something into master, right? When I managed to, to get something into master, I feel a very enjoyable feeling. You know, shipping is intensely enjoyable. I dance a little dance whenever I get to, <laughs> to merge something into master. And if you have something in the air for two weeks, you just don't get to experience that for a really long time. So I think it really helps you also feel a little bit less stressed about your work and feel more more happy. There was one other idea Jeepal put out, which is not, I think, unique to him, but just the framing was quite interesting, was that this idea that we build, when we're building software, we're building two applications, the, the making app and the shipping app. And the shipping app is the product that we ship to customers. But there's also a second app, which is the thing that supports us making the customer-facing yeah. product. Have you built tooling in the, the making app for AppPitch? Yeah, totally. I think it's a super important. I mean, I guess everybody does that to a certain extent. It's just that people don't talk about it in this way normally. Yeah. So so the idea that Jipo introduces is that there are two apps really when you're building software. You're building a shipping app, right? That's the that's the app that's going to be delivered to the user. That's kind of obvious. But while you're developing, you're also building another app that's built from the same sources mostly. But you, you get the chance to put a better interface on top of the code. So I can maybe give you one example of how we did that at Pitch pretty early on in the history of the company. So that, that must have been like two years ago when we were implementing the synchronization system that allows you to make changes to the document, send those to the server and get the updated version back from the server. And what we found was that the way we we had built the synchronization system didn't work very well when people were making some specific changes at the same time. Mm -hmm. So concurrent edits to the same document didn't work well when, for example, two users were adding a slide at the same time. So what ended up happening was one of those users would win out and would clobber the other user's changes. Hmm. And that was obviously not an acceptable result. So we were kind of trying our different conflict resolution strategies to ensure that the changes would be merged in a more graceful way rather than letting one of the users lose the changes. So what we ended up building was a making app to guide us towards this goal. So we built a section of the app called the Playground, which is only available in development builds. And we built a very simplistic UI that allowed you to create a simulation of concurrent edits. So you had like two columns on the left hand is user A, on the right hand is user B. And then you can simulate different sequence of events. So for example, user A creates a slide, then pushes it to the changer, to the server. Then user B pulls from the server, makes a change, but didn't doesn't push yet, makes another change, pulls from the server, and so on and so on. And that way we were able to visualize and experiment with this relatively complex distributed system problem that helped us find a, an algorithm that probably merges the changes from the two users without dropping one one or the other. 
So I'm giving this as an, as an example of this making app idea because we were kind of using the same library, the same conflict resolution library, both in the making app and the shipping app. But testing it properly in the shipping app was very difficult because you would have to kind of open two browser windows at the same time, <laughs> then make a change on the one side, then really fast jump over to the next window and make another change there. It was basically impossible to test it there. So an interface that was catering to the needs of the user, and the user in this case is not the customer, the end user, but the developer who's building the feature. I think Clojure is great in this regard because there's a kind of a culture around experimentation, a culture around making apps at pitch. And not just at pitch, but also in the Clojure community at large. So for example, the dev cards library or the dev cards system by Bruce Horman is one of those examples yeah. that kind of encourage you to build these little small experiments where you can exercise code in a visual browser-based way. Yeah. Another thing that Clojure, I think, does pretty well, partly from the language and partly from the, the culture, is writing the code in such a way that it is testable and you, know, you can break down this algorithm that was meant to be run in a server concurrently and you could step through it, you know, I imagine, without making too many changes to the core structure of how that works. Yeah, exactly. I think another aspect that plays into this is Clojure's insistence on printable and readable data structures, data structures that kind of wear their heart out on the sleeves. I think that's a very useful doing this investigation, experimentation phase, because just, you can just print out everything you need to the console and you'll have some data that you can work with. It makes it very easy to inspect the internals of the tools that you're using or the, the libraries that you're using. And most libraries are actually following this idea that you should be mainly working with data. You shouldn't try to hide data in opaque classes that are difficult to inspect. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the sort of broad tech stack that you've got at Pitch? You've got Clojure on ClojureScript, but you know what are you using beneath that? Well, on the backend side, it's not very exciting. We're just basically using an HTTP server with a routing library. I think in this case, we're using Biddy, but you know it's a very nice booting library, but any other routing library could work as well. And the main data storage uh, we're using is Postgres. And we find that Clojure works really well with working with a relational database system. So that's on the, the back end and then on the front end, which is the more complex part of our application, right? I did the math the other day and it was like a breakdown of 80% to 20% Clojure script compared to Clojure code. Because we're building an offline-first application, right? So all the things need also work while you're offline. So you need to be able to move a, a block, and that should work seamlessly. And then once you kind of maybe you're in the train and you come out of the tunnel, and then the changes get synced up to the server, and that should the user shouldn't able, even notice that that's what's happening. You know, it's kind of this trend in the last twenty years of moving more logic from the server side to the to the client. In, in, our, in our case, we're, we're building a single-page application. So we're really not building a web page anymore. We're building a fully-fledged desktop or web application that has all the same problems of a long-running you know, desktop application. And are you using a ClojureScript framework and React, or what, is, what does that look like on the front end? Yeah, I think almost everybody in ClojureScript 
land is using React in some way. And I think that's because it's such a natural combination. It's a, a match made in heaven, I think. So we are you'll be using React and we'll be using Reagent as our main React wrapper. Mm-hmm. But recently we've also been trying to get more and more back on the train, so to speak, with respect to following the development of React JavaScript ecosystem. So all the new features that have been introduced to React in the last five years mm-hmm. that haven't really found their way into the closer script ecosystem as much. We're trying to benefit from those new developments like React hooks and this kind of new style of writing React applications. And we're trying to get on that train as well. Cool. Are you using spec or Mali or any kind of schema specification system? Yeah, we're using spec mainly on the front-end side. We have a way to annotate function calls with specs. We don't turn those spec checks on in production because it really puts a penalty on runtime performance. And we feel like we can't afford to pay this cost during runtime. But uh, during development time, we have a lot of spec annotations for the data structures that we're using and for a fair amount of functions that we're using. We're using it especially with reagent view functions that expect a certain shape of data as a prop map. Mm-hmm. And we verify that it has all the keys that we expect. Something you've uh, talked about not that long ago was technical writing for programmers. Yeah, And one thing you mentioned in the talk was writing in English. And I was that pitches based in Berlin, but I guess you've got people all over the world. Is English the kind of working language for the company or German or how does that work? It is. From the very beginning, we did everything at pitch in English. I think that's you know that's not unusual for a startup out of the Berlin ecosystem. That's kind of the normal way of doing things these days that you want to hire as broadly as possible. And certainly for pitch, it's true. You know, we didn't just hire, even in the beginning, we didn't just hire within Berlin. But now that we are a very remote friendly or even remote first company, you know, we've been hiring all over the world and only a fraction of the people at pitch actually speak German. So English is the natural choice as a, as a lingua franca for a company like this. Cool. And how does pitch use writing as a tool? In the company? Well, we kind of realized that writing is a very important skill for developers. It's kind of interesting because it's clear that in today's world of remote work, the ability to do asynchronous communication by writing things down and then having people comment on it asynchronously, that's an important skill and that's something that most people are aware of. But what we found was that this is not the only benefit. It's also very useful for the author of a document to write down their thoughts because that kind of forces you to be very clear about what you're trying to say. And more often than not, you discover something that you didn't know when trying to clarify your thoughts by writing them down as a document. The concrete form that this takes at pitch, you know, we have writing happens all over the company, of course, you know, on GitHub and on Slack and various different forms. We have a a Notion wiki that we're using quite extensively. But maybe the most interesting form of technical writing at pitch is 
that we are writing down RFCs or request for comments documents for important features that we're trying to implement. And that really helps make sure that you're on the right path and get alignment from other people in the team before you even get started implementing the feature. Mm -hmm. Maybe it makes sense if I give an example of how that played out recently. Yeah. So this is just something I, I worked on recently and a bunch of people in my team worked on recently. We were investigating a problem with pitch, which would sometimes start up slowly when you were opening a big workspace. The background of that is that we had to download a bunch of data. You know, I mentioned it's a it's an offline-first application. So we proactively download a lot of data about the workspace before we open the workspace and let the user interact with, with it. It ended up that it could take up to 10 seconds to load the first screen in a large workspace. So what we did was to write an RFC document to investigate a potential way forward to fix this problem. We often notice these problems with bigger data sets at pitch uh, first when we're working in our own workspace because our workspace is actually the oldest, no surprise there, but also one of the biggest workspaces Mm -hmm. that people use. It has a lot of documents and a lot of large documents, and we're kind of dogfooding pitch quite a lot around the company. So (laughs) that gives us the luxury or the pain that we we feel the pain of scale earlier in our own company or in our own workspace. So that was was kind of getting obvious that it was taking too long to load. So yeah, we wrote down this document and we have a template, a pitch that gives you a bunch of headlines, essentially, and you kind of fill in the details then. So what the RFC ended up proposing was instead of loading all the data up front, we changed the API so that you could specify as a client which data you wanted to load ahead of time and which data you wanted to load in a lazy way. And specifically, what what we found was that the data that was taking up the most space and was taking the longest to pull down from the server was the data required to show the first slide of a presentation when you're looking at Mm -hmm. the workspace and the dashboard. So the change that we ended up making was that the client would lazy load those first slides and only load them when they were needed. Like, for example, when the user scrolls down on the folder and reveals the the document. Mm -hmm. And that allowed us to reduce the amount of data that we need to pull down from the server by something like 70%. So it was a big improvement, both in data usage and time that it takes to load the workspace. The RFC really helped us find the solution because, well, first of all, you start with a problem statement, right? That's really important. You don't start out solutioneering. You don't start with your own preferred solution. <laughs> Instead, you you know, kind of try to force yourself to describe the goal of what you're trying to do in the most neutral terms. They don't just prejudge or really anticipate the solution that you have in mind. You know, there's a section about geeky details. You can add some data as evidence to support your, your argument. So this was really important in this case because we wrote down a table listing all the different elements of the workspace data and you know, identifying which part of that took up the most space. And then there's a section about data structure changes. As a closure company, we, of course, have to <laughs> put the data structures front and center. If you're making a change and you're changing the shape of the data structures, it's a good idea to give a sketch of what that change will look like. 
for example, if you're making a change to the database, how will the data database schema change? Or what is the shape of the in-memory data structures that you're proposing? And in this case, we were proposing a change to the API. So we kind of outlined in, in rough terms what the API should look like. And then finally, there's like this final section that is, in my opinion, the most important one, which is alternatives considered, right? So instead of just cheerleading for your own solution, you actually have to force yourself to write down a couple of alternatives that would accomplish the same goal. And you have to explain why you picked your preferred solution as opposed to those alternatives. So for example, in this case, another possibility to fix the problem would have been to Instead of return the first slides in the shape of data structures, we could have rendered them into an image on the server side and then returned them back as a PNG. And that would have had some advantages. But when we considered the possibility, we realized that we didn't want to do it because it would mean that the slide would have to be rendered first on the server, which would take a little bit of time because you have to kind of spin up a headless browser to render the structure. Mm-hmm. And then that would mean that changes to the first slide would propagate in a less speedy fashion to other clients. So we actually wrote down you know, the advantages of that alternative, but we also wrote down why we consider this not the best solution at this point. The big upside of this is that we now have a written record of this alternative solution, and we might well get back to it you know, in six months, and maybe we consider the possibility of kind of image-based first slide data structures, for example, if we can speed up the rendering process on the server. Mm-hmm. You put a lot of thought into those that analysis and trade-offs and figuring out all the different options. And yeah, it's a shame if you don't write it down and lose lose all those um, lose all that context. Um, yeah, it kind of gives you a history as well, like a chronological rundown of what happened in the company and you know if somebody joins the company in six months they can go back and look up the reasons why certain decisions were made the way they were made yeah so it can be very helpful to get some context yeah one thing i've found when joining github was that there was some decisions that were made which were kind of you know made many years ago which they were impacting us in a sort of a frustrating way but we were, i was able to go back and look at the decision making why they mm-hmm. made the decision that they made all these years ago. And I could read it and understand it and go, okay, like I see why you did that. Like perhaps there was some outcomes or it made other things more difficult later on, but here was your options. You explained the trade-offs and now I feel much happier about the decision and the position that we were in because it wasn't like some other people made a a dumb decision and now we always have to live with it was no actually you know they carefully evaluated the trade-offs and they made what they thought was the best decision at the time and yeah i think it probably was and we can live with it but it wasn't this sort of anonymous thing that was just a fact of life now you could actually see the discussion and why and you know that helped with my morale Exactly. And and by making it explicit, you also give people a way to challenge a decision. Yes. So, you know, a couple of years later, you can kind of look at it. You know, there was this reason and there were reasons at the time why we went this way, but maybe those reasons aren't valid anymore. We've learned a bunch in the inter- intervening years. So maybe we can reopen the discussion or not. Yeah. One other thing you've written about is having a monorepo at pitch. And you wrote your post about this two and a half years ago. 
And how is Pitch's monorepo scaled up to 70 developers? I th- imagine that's a pretty active repo now. Is it still a monorepo? Are you still happy? It is still happily a monorepo. <laughs> and I think, you know, 70 developers is not the kind of scale where you feel the problems with scaling get. I think it makes sense if you think about, for example, the Linux kernel, which is, you know, one of the most successful, maybe the most successful software project of all times. It's also kept as a monorepo, and there's way more than 70 people <laughs> working yeah. on this. So just in terms of repository size, unless you're working at Google or Facebook scale, you're probably not going to run into drastic scaling limits. Unless you're doing unreasonable things like adding a bunch of junk to the repository. So you do need to be a little bit careful with not adding too many binary files and you know very large build artifacts to the repository. So as long as you keep to the rule that all the changes that you're making are kind of human scale, right? It's somebody keyboarding, you know, typing things into a keyboard. You know, that's not going to, no matter how productive your developers are, you will never reach the point where you can kind of fill up a Git repository <laughs> with 70 people in a normal time frame. But of course, if you're adding a lot of binary blobs, Git doesn't cope as well with that. So I don't think there's a, a scaling problem around kind of the size of the repository. It's more around other things like how your build server is coping with a monorepository structure or how kind of culturally you're working with it as a team. Yeah. And how do you find, yeah, as a sort of scaling the engineering team around a monorepo? I mean, I honestly think that there's a, a lot of good reasons for a monorepository for a company of our size. And the biggest one is kind of like a, just a kind of a philosophical point, which is that with a single repository, you also have a single state of the world for your entire organization. So the intuition that I, I usually start with is that as a company, or maybe it's a nonprofit organization, you're trying to work on a common mission or something that you're trying to accomplish together And that's probably going to be fulfilling some need of a customer, right? And everything you're doing is contributing in a direct or an indirect way to this mission. As you're going along, you're learning more. And software development in in particular is kind of an exercise in, in knowledge acquisition. So the code that you have in your repository is kind of the things that you've learned about your business domain. And I think from that perspective, because you're kind of all working on a single mission, it also makes sense to store the knowledge of your organization all collected together in a, in a single place, in a, in a monorepo. And there's like a bunch of good things that come from it. The simplest one is that it gives you a, a way to grab in your repository. If you have a, a monorepo, you could just use a tool like ripgrab or gitgrab. Mm-hmm. And you can just search for a phrase. Uh, you can see if somebody in the organization already used that tool or library or concept or API. And you can even answer negative existentials about your company. So for example, let's say you want to find out if somebody at your company used the AWS service CloudWatch Hmm. before. Well, all you have to do is type in the word CloudWatch in your grab tool. You turn on the case insensitive search. (laughs) And then if it doesn't show up any hits, then you have a pretty good evidence that nobody has used CloudWatch in your organization before. 
so long as you're putting all your infrastructure down as uh, infrastructure as code. But that, that's something that you should be doing in 2021 anyway. So it, it can help you answer real questions about your company. Cool. Do you have anything clever in the build server for sort of avoiding running tests on parts that haven't changed or does everything just run on every commit? We have a very simplistic check on the build server that basically does a git diff mm -hmm. compared to the last version of master. And if anything changed in a bunch of well-known directories, then we run the build. Otherwise, we skip it. So roughly speaking, if you're only changing backend code, we don't have to run the frontend cool. unit tests or vice versa. And that already gets you, uh, gets you quite far. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But the, the, the big advantage that you get from the whole business is that you can refer to any given state of your organization, you know, be it the front-end code or the, the back-end code or the infrastructure code. You can refer to this as a single snapshot. You can refer to it with a single name, right? That's part of the closure philosophy that you can give names. You have this immutable value and you can give a name to it and it's a SHA hash, right? Mm. So once you know, know the SHA hash, you know exactly what was the state of the system, the state of the world for your organization at that point. So that's very helpful when you're testing or when you're, when you're debugging something because, for example, if your build fails on a, on a build server, you know exactly what the kind of inputs were to that system. And I think that's an interesting analogy to closure there. In closure, we like to make state explicit by wrapping it in atoms, you know, whereas in, in Java, everything is kind of mutable by default. In closure, you have to create an, an atom to make something mutable. If you have multiple repositories, if you have a poly repo, you end up multiplying the state that you're keeping around, right? You, you, you basically have multiple atoms, whereas with the mono repo, you have one atom mm. that kind of contains the state of your world. It's kind of similar to different ways of splitting up state in a front-end application. You know, you can have a, a map or a vector of atoms, or you can have a, an atom of a vector. And most of the time, you're better off picking the latter approach. You're better off minimizing the kind of moving parts and only having one uh, place that changes. And with a monorepo, you, you kind of have a single atom that contains the entire state of the world that also gives you this additional ability to make changes to the code in an atomic way, right? You, you can make a change just like with the closure atom in such a way that there's no in-between where part of the code is in this previous state and part of the code is in the next state. And with the polar repo, it's always going to be more difficult to do this because you, you don't have this ability to make atomic changes. Awesome. So one other thing I wanted to mention is that Pitch has been a Closures Together member for quite a while, almost three years, I think, at this point, as a extremely generous sponsor. So on behalf of Pitch, as Pitch's representative here, I wanted to say thank you publicly to you and, of course, to all of the other Closures Together members. But you're the one here today, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, and it's a very important uh, initiative, and we're, we're very happy that it exists. It's great to be part of the Clojure community. You know, Clojure is not just a language. It's also kind of this ecosystem of people who think a certain way and kind of have these cultural values that they share. And uh, that's one of the things that we've found when hiring and pitch 
that it's quite easy to hire very smart people. And not just smart people, but also people who are nice and work well in teams and kind of have the heart in the right place with closure. Excellent. Well, this has been a pleasure talking to you, as I fully expected it would be. I am excited to see Pitch continue to grow and expand. Pitch is now fully available, right? Anyone can just sign up and use it today? Yeah, exactly. We launched in October last year, and we've already had tens of thousands of teams join. So it's it's very exciting to see it grow. Wow. And Pitch.com tells me you have 26 jobs open, including a number in engineering uh, as well as other positions what is the kind of remote you know it says berlin slash remote uh, what does that what does that mean for someone who is interested in joining pitch i think it would be more accurate to say it's remote slash berlin <laughs> so we've we've hired people uh, across the world we don't care very much where you live we're considering candidates from everywhere you don't even have to be a closure expert to join pitch in fact we've learned that we don't need just closure expertise when you're working on, on on a product like Pitch. You know, you need all kinds of other expertise, like working with a web platform, working with JavaScript, working on an interactive editor type of application. So we're also very happy to hire candidates who are great at JavaScript or great at Java or any other related technologies. We've realized that it's very easy to train them up to, to learn closure within a month or so. Awesome. And do you have any sort of time zone requirements of overlap with Berlin or anywhere else? I think overlap with Berlin is a plus, but not a necessity. Okay, great. So just about anywhere in the world. Pretty much. Awesome. That's the the new world of post-pandemic tech hiring. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Paulus. This was wonderful, and I'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks. I really enjoyed the conversation.